0: This is Peace Talks Radio, the series about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls along with Megan Kamrick today. The evolution of medical discoveries and advanced technologies have brought wonderful cures and increased longevity. But what have we lost? How often have you been a patient or an advocate for a loved one in the hospital and faced doctors and healthcare workers who seem curt or who aren't fully present and listening? Today on Peace Talks Radio, we'll talk about empathy and compassion in medicine. There's an increasing recognition that compassionate care not only improves patient outcomes but also helps doctors avoid professional burnout. Today, Megan Kamrek talks with three guests. Later, Dr. David Rakel talks about the role compassion and human connection play in promoting health and well-being, something he witnessed often in his own practice. Dr. Mark J. Kahn and his colleagues created a study and found a correlation between exposure to the arts and empathy in medical students. But first, Dr. Rena Audish, who learned a harrowing lesson when she went from being a critical care physician to being a critical care patient in her own hospital, the Henry Ford Health System in Detroit. A tumor on her liver ruptured during her pregnancy, and she nearly died. Audish found there was a shocking lack of empathy among her colleagues, and realized many of the faults she saw she had committed herself as a doctor.
1: It didn't feel that there was a com- an emotional connection to my care team. If I didn't feel that they were invested in my recovery or saw my suffering, there was a hollowness to it that, honestly, as a physician, I never anticipated.
2: After you barely survive surgery, you hear the surgical resident presenting your case outside your room, which I'm sure you've done a number of times. And he says, she's trying to die on us. She's circling the drain. This was a real epiphany for you. Why?
1: I had said that. Same thing. You know, he's been trying to die on me. I know as a physician I had said that. And I had never thought about who might hear it. I had never thought about the directionality of that statement. So not just that a patient was trying to die, but that they were trying to die on me. That created this idea of antagonism between the care team and the patient. Because as a patient, I knew I was trying very hard not to die. And yet my team was attributing this intention to me that in some ways I felt was an easy out. It was a way of saying, well, she's trying to die, so even if we do everything we can and she dies, that's, it's almost an unavoidable reality. I was horrified that I had said it and yet realized that the culture really created a milieu in which that was how we viewed the patient-physician relationship.
2: How did that experience influence you later when you were on rounds and it was a student or a resident, I think, who started talking about a patient who was dying while in the room with her?
1: So there were a number of instances like that when I returned that I think prior I wouldn't have noticed. It was just so characteristic of our culture that my ear wasn't attuned to it. And it took time to integrate both halves of myself where I could really teach to the residents how hurtful those things can be. As a patient, when you overhear them and how even if we don't imagine that the patient can overhear them, there were times when I could hear my care team describe me in that way and they would have never thought that I would have known because I was either in a, in a medically induced coma or in the operating room in a state where they just weren't anticipating that, that I would have those senses intact. But hearing is the last to go. And so often our patients will tell us, you know, I heard everything that was happening around me. And I just feel that we need to control for those episodes of harm that are really preventable suffering. There's so much of suffering that's inherent to disease that you can't avoid. But we have to identify when we are applying additional suffering to a situation. That's our obligation.
2: I confess it was terrifying to read. I mean, at one point you're going into anaphylactic shock and you couldn't get anyone to pay attention to that. And at another time they had a line had fallen out so you didn't get enough uh, painkillers and you're in so much pain. And then they were asking you questions indicating they thought you might be an addict.
1: For me, it was terrifying because not only did I realize that I didn't have a voice, and when I did have a voice, it wasn't necessarily believed, that I was incredibly vulnerable, but my life was in the hands sometimes of people who didn't believe me. As a physician, if I couldn't advocate for myself in those situations, that Spoke to me so strongly that I had to tell this story because I, at least in theory, had a voice and agency and some knowledge of, of medicine. And so many of our patients are disenfranchised and don't have any of those things.
2: I forgot to add the one instance, of course, when you were going into sepsis and a doctor dismissed you as an anxious young woman.
1: And we do that. There's good evidence that women get less pain control than men do, that they're believed less about their pain. This is true even more if you are Hispanic or African-American. There are huge issues with implicit bias in medicine that we have not looked at
2: how did these experiences spark a realization about how you yourself had interacted with patients?
1: As a patient, when I heard these things said to me, I felt so damaged by it. And yet, I recognized myself in every failure. I, I saw how we as a culture didn't View the emotional aspect of the care that we provided in the same way that we valued the medicine. That we were so oriented to the disease that we sometimes even missed the person that was carrying the disease in their body.
2: When you were training as a medical student, how were displays of emotion or empathy toward patients treated by senior doctors?
1: So I was in medical school about 20 years ago, and at that time, we were told that our job was the medicine the science and that if we wanted to care for patients if we wanted to emote with patients or have feelings about it medicine wasn't the field that was something else that was maybe nursing social work so although our first instinct as medical students who were naive was to feel things very strongly i remember feeling it very strongly when, when mothers would have a stillbirth or a patient would die. When we displayed that emotion, we were told that we were being reckless and careless and we were putting our other patients in jeopardy. I don't think we saw any way out but to suppress those emotions and, and really keep them not only to ourselves, but in some ways even hidden from ourselves.
2: What effect does that tamping down of emotions have on young doctors?
1: Yeah, I think it's disastrous. What I recognize now is that we didn't have a culture of resiliency where we could feel our feelings. There wasn't a place for it because there was no venue for it. There was no safe space for disclosure. There weren't the things that are being put into place now where... We talk about the harder things, we have activities around sublimating those emotions into more productive means of expression like writing and art. We didn't have any of that, and I think left to our own devices, we just tried to numb the feelings, and numbing them often meant alcohol, drugs, avoidant behavior. Uh, we lost two residents to suicide during my training had we had those tools i i always will wonder if that would have been different
2: your mentors argued while you were training that letting patients touch you emotionally would make it impossible for you to practice medicine it would be too overwhelming isn't there some truth to that
1: you know i subscribed to that for a time because it was presented to me by people who i trusted I believed that I couldn't get attached to people. If I did, I would somehow be depleted by it. When I saw the relationships that I had with physicians who bucked that trend, who decided that they were going to invest in me, in caring about me in showing that they cared, and how truly that amplified their practice, that it didn't diminish it, that was when I really decided to try being different. And what I've found is that it truly does open so many channels that are available to me, not just to the patient, that fuel my resilience and my longevity, I hope, in medicine in a way that I never could have attained if I had kept myself closed off.
2: How are you working with your hospital, the Henry Ford Health System, to foster a new culture and change some of this?
1: One of the things that I noticed as a patient was how difficult it was for my physicians to give me bad news. It was uncomfortable. They felt like they were failing me. They didn't know how to do it well. So, one of our first initiatives, we call it CLEAR Conversation. So, CLEAR is an acronym that stands for Connect, Listen, Empathize, Align, and Respect. And those are the overarching values that all of our communications initiatives have at their core. And we use improvisational actors to role-play difficult conversations with physicians, and they get to try out new skills in terms of not only noticing emotion, which we talked about is an issue, but responding to emotion with empathy and compassion, really exploring with humility the values of the patient and aligning with those values before you provide a discussion of recommendations for care, it's branched beautifully into so many other areas that really are more about physician resilience and wellness, from having safe spaces to debrief after, after bad events like codes that we didn't used to talk about, to narrative medicine exercises where physicians might parallel chart they'll write about an experience in the chart the way we normally document but then they'll journal about their feelings and we share those sometimes at story slams but we do it with an eye for resilience so this isn't an airing of grievances this is truly examining our stories for that beautiful golden center that is universal for everyone and uniting around that
0: that was Dr. Renna Odish, author of the book In Shock. Dr. Odish has a personal creative outlet in painting, and a new study found that among medical students, exposure to the arts and humanities is related to greater levels of empathy. Dr. Mark J. Kahn of Tulane University School of Medicine was one of the study's co-authors and says the arts can also help doctors avoid burnout.
3: The way that our brains are organized Appreciation of arts and humanities are considered a more open framework for um, attaining knowledge. And we think that through exposure to humanities, our brains work a little bit differently and allow us to better understand the human condition and ourselves.
2: What did you find about the kinds of humanities exposure? that most closely correlates with more empathy.
3: They all correlated very well. And what we did is we came up with a quantitative um, humanity score that considered the amount of time spent either actively or passively with these endeavors. The other thing that was interesting is we might have hypothesized from the onset that active participation was better than passive participation. But in our study, we really didn't find that. And there were really no differences between exposure, whether it was active or passive.
2: Some of the qualities that you found were fostered by this and that you wanted to focus on included spatial skills and tolerance of ambiguity and a few others. But can you talk about the role that these play in promoting empathy in someone?
3: Yes. So... Tolerance of ambiguity is an important characteristic for a physician. Medicine can be ambiguous. It's not an exact science. It's not like math or physics or even chemistry. And when one sees a patient with a constellation of symptoms, one makes their best educated guess, if you will, uses their best detective skills to make a diagnosis. So, tolerance of ambiguity is. Exceedingly important, and we all have examples of physicians who were relatively intolerant of ambiguity who got frustrated and perhaps even left the medical field. The, the spatial test that we used in our study, we actually added um, because we thought that spatial ability plays a role in creativity and may also be important for for some aspects of of medical practice. Physician empathy really fosters the ability of physicians to modify behavior to create a population of more healthy patients.
2: So what do your conclusions mean for medical education?
3: I think our conclusions support the notion that there's an association between exposure to arts and humanities and positive physician qualities, including reduced burnout. This is not a cause and effect study. I think that's important. But we're able to statistically show a very robust and meaningful um, correlation between the two.
2: How can the, the pretty crammed curriculum that medical students already have in med school fit in more materials, such as humanities?
3: Yeah, so I don't think it's fitting in more material. I think it's looking at the way that you uh, deliver a curriculum. For example, I'm a hematologist and when I show images of blood cells, I ask my students in the class to draw them. Drawing again engages that part of the brain that makes it more open to new ideas. So rather than having a separate class, I incorporate arts and humanities into an existing class. Another example that's done around the United States is when we teach students physical diagnosis, we bring them to an art museum and teach and foster their skills and observation. So I don't think it's adding more to the curriculum. I think it's changing the pedagogy or the way we teach what we already teach medical students.
2: What about people who are already doctors? Does uh, what you found have implications for ways to help them be more empathetic?
3: A PhD scientist, Albert Einstein, would frequently stop and pull out his violin and play for a while when he got stuck. He talked about doing that. We know that Bill Roth, um, a famous surgeon, would take time out to play orchestral music apparently he did very well. So I think that there's been examples of physicians who incorporate arts into their lives to enrich their careers. Perhaps an an implication is we need to do more of these things for physicians in an effort to help prevent burnout. Um, In fact, at our institution several weeks ago, We brought in an expert on cheese, invited faculty to a free tasting and seminar, again, to help prevent burnout, help people to use a different part of their brains, and help people to think more creatively.
0: We'll hear more from Dr. Mark J. Kahn on the links between the humanities and empathy later in our program. After a break, conversation about fostering authentic connections between doctors and patients. More on that and with our guests when Peace Talks Radio continues in a moment. listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls today, along with Megan Kamrick. You can find all our episodes dating back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com. We now continue our show on compassion and empathy in medicine with Dr. David Raichel. He was founder and director of the University of Wisconsin Integrative Medicine Program and is now the chair of family and community medicine at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. His book is called The Compassionate Connection, The Healing Power of Empathy and Mindful Listening. He details numerous examples of how compassionate care creates better health outcomes. So there's a classic study done in Italy where
4: uh, people just came out of surgery and in one group they had a very kind, compassionate nurse say, Hey, we're going to give you a pain to help with your or pain medicine to help with your suffering. And they all got morphine. And the other group is that they got morphine at an unpredicted time from a computer behind a curtain without that human interaction. And then they looked at the severity of pain and the severity of anxiety. And the pain and anxiety, when that morphine uh, was given by a kind nurse, a kind human being, The amount of pain reduction went down significantly. And then they calculated the degree of that pain reduction when that medicine was given by a nurse versus a computer behind a screen. And that equaled eight milligrams of morphine.
2: Which is a lot. Which is a lot. We usually
4: start with two milligrams. And if you need eight milligrams of morphine, we worry about putting you in respiratory (laughs) rest. But just that human connection has a tremendous effect.
2: Which I think is really interesting because I know you're doing research on the placebo effect. So we, it's sort of a derogatory term. Right. But you're sort of turning that around saying, yeah. actually, what you're seeing is a placebo effect, and it was a positive thing yes. in a way.
4: <laughs> exactly. And we, we want to get rid of that word placebo because it, it, it suggests trickery. And this isn't trickery. This is strategic healing, right? We're trying to act- activate internal healing mechanisms uh, that allows that individual to get better whether we give a drug or not and if we do give a drug hopefully it'll work better
2: you write that it's not just about communication better communication is always great but it's about connection yeah why is that distinction so important
4: (laughs) well i think it's something you feel and uh, when someone feels connected to another human being they're more likely to disclose or, or share sensitive information and in order for us to make an accurate diagnosis, often it's the story beneath the symptom that gives us the true diagnosis. And and so that connecting really allows authentic information to come out that allows us to be more accurate in judging what's really going on in another human being. Otherwise, we just project our beliefs, right? If I don't take time to listen and you come in with epigastric pain in between your ribs, I can just shut that off with a omeprazole proton pump inhibitor, uh, but that doesn't get at the root of what's eating you up inside, and and that's that metaphor, the story of metaphor that only comes out if we're trusted, and uh, if it comes out, that alone is therapeutic. If you're holding something inside that's tense and 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 sad and and angry, often that comes out in some sort of symptom. And one of the my favorite quotes was by. Uh, Henry Maudsley, one of the fathers of psychology, he said, the sorrow that hath no vent in tears may make other organs weep.
2: How does a doctor or a caregiver's intention or emotion affect a patient's well-being? You write about that.
4: Yeah. And we talk about the first step in this process of compassionate connection is to do your own work. And, you know, if we're stressed out, the patient's going to be stressed out. Emotion is, is contagious. And if we're not calm and and trustworthy, uh, they're not going to feel calm and trustworthy. (laughs) You get what you give, right? So uh, how we are with people really, really matters in our ability to go in, find how those self-healing mechanisms need to be defined and then mobilize them.
2: I wanted to reference a part of your book here. You shared a story from a colleague who watched an oncologist tell a patient that he was going to die. Mm-hmm. He was young, he was 31. Yeah. And he actually asked her, What happens when we die? I just wanted to read that real quick. I don't know what happens when we die. Some people believe there's a heaven, some people believe we get to come back to life in a new way. I honestly don't know, but I do know this. Look around this room. You can feel the love that's here right now in this room. I believe you were conceived in love. You were raised in love. Love is here right now. And I believe with all my heart, when you pass from this life, you will be received by love. It is love. She was actually telling him, it's like, you, it's time for you to leave the hospital mm-hmm. and go home and be with your family and die. And you write that patients don't remember what we tell them or what you might tell them as much as how you made them feel. How do you suggest that doctors and caregivers find it in themselves to be as compassionate as this doctor was?
4: <laughs> well, that, uh, Catherine Bonus was the head of our mindfulness program at University Wisconsin, and she was there during that story. And uh, she actually went back and uh, interviewed that physician and said, "How did you? How did you do that?" It was beautiful. You know, it was a beautiful example of artful connecting. <laughs> and she said, "I don't know." <laughs> I just calmed my mind and those words came out. And I I think that's so important that we clear our own clutter. You cannot treat suffering with facts. It's impossible. It never works. So if someone is suffering, we have to get out of our own clutter. We have to really drop in uh, into the present moment on purpose without judgment. That's the definition of mindfulness. And just be with them. And often, in that beautiful, special place, the beauty comes out. And sometimes beauty isn't the right word. Uh, I would say authentic- authenticity comes out. The the truth comes out uh, of what's really going on and what that person needs most. And so that's the practice, is how do we first do this for ourselves uh, in service of others? And we can't do it for anybody unless we explore it in ourselves.
2: You write, so you encourage people to turn toward suffering. Yeah, is that difficult to it is. tell?
4: <laughs> it is. Which would you rather do, go get a massage or turn towards suffering? Everybody's going to go get a massage. But if we're really going to explore those root causes of disease or disease or a symptom, at some point we have to turn towards it. And if we're brave enough to do that together, some wonderful things happen. Things that make your hair stand up on the back of your neck and things that energize us, both of us, because we like to say curing goes one way, us to them, but healing goes both ways. And and we get just as much out of this as, as the other person does.
2: You know, and it's interesting, you write that we're all hardwired to be fixers rather than healers. What's the difference? <laughs> a,
4: well, there's a big difference. And both are beautiful, right? You know, if you have a broken fever, take me to UNM Hospital. Let me. fixed by one of our great orthopedic surgeons. But if you have a fixer who's also a healer, ah, then then you've got it. Then you have the surgeon who comes and sits by your bedside before surgery and puts you at ease and creates positive expectation that, hey, uh, we're going to get you better. And you've got a great team around you to help you succeed and we'll get you back to work and connected to your family. Uh, So fixing isn't a bad thing. Uh, But fixing and healing have completely different curriculums, and they are synergistic. They build on each other, and they help each other.
2: I'm guessing that a lot of doctors do want to have a connection with their patients and authentic conversations, but there are a lot of structural constraints preventing this, such as the time they can spend with them, the documentation they have to do. How do you suggest workarounds on these? Yeah.
4: Uh, the challenges are, uh, particularly when you're, or you're paid by how many patients you see, that encourages us to see more patients. Uh, and that also creates a barrier uh, between connecting to that person in front of you. And now we have this electronic health record, and we are being asked to uh, put more data in that. Medical record, and the research shows that we spend twice as much time looking at computers than we do at human beings uh, in the practice of medicine. And that's an unsustainable medical process. And we're exploring ways where we can use that tool to allow more face to face time instead of face to computer time. And that's being strategic by using other health providers to maybe do some more data entry so we can have time working at the top of our license to really give that other human being what we know best. Uh, after we listen to the story. More than 50% of physicians in America uh, report at least one symptom of burnout. And I would argue that it's these barriers that prevent this human connection, which feeds us most in this work, is at the root of that uh, burnout.
2: Can you teach empathy?
4: (laughs) That's a big question. I believe yes. But there's also a difference between empathy and compassion. And I'd like to just hit on that a little bit here, that empathy requires me to feel your pain, and then do something about it. That's different than sympathy. Sympathy means we cry together and go home, there's no action. Empathy requires action to what I feel from you. Now that leads to empathy fatigue because when we're dealing with suffering, that's assuming I can fix your suffering, which I can't, I can't do that. I mean, think about how many times you've tried to change a loved one, a spouse or a child, and how did that go for you, right? (laughs) They will find their own way but compassion is different that's two people suffering together in the root essence of that word we are one that when i help you i help myself and when i have that mindset when i walk in that room uh, that makes it more fun because i'm going to connect to your story once i hear that story we're going to try and figure out a better path towards your health and we're going to do it together through dialogue where that word means meaning running through. How do we open up that conversation? And in helping you, I help myself. And the beautiful thing about this work in medicine is sometimes if you have this relationship with your patients, they'll come into my office. I'm supposed to be treating them, and they'll say, Dave, you don't look so good. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Are you getting enough sleep? And we start to treat each other.
2: What is the patient's role to foster empathy and hmm. compassion and connection in this relationship?
4: It's, it's, it's really important and uh we had a big grant with the VA medical system where we really tried to allow the veteran to uh be in mission control of their health just like if they were going out on a military mission we, we would ask them what do you want your health for do you know your body better than than i do where do you need to start and then who do you need to support you and that was tough because uh in VA healthcare and all of healthcare people are expecting us to just give them stuff and Uh, I don't know, you tell me, you're the doctor type of answer, whereas uh, really the wisdom is within each of us. And the main predictor of healthy outcomes is what we do, not what we take. So we really have to ask our patients to be part of this conversation and not just expect things from us. 36% of Americans are on five drugs or more, and we have an epidemic of polypharmacy. And partly to blame is this pill for every ill throughput medical care mentality that we need to change. Now, if you come in with a sinus infection and you've never had one before, okay, I'll give you the antibiotic and, and I don't need to talk about what gives your life meaning. But if you have a chronic disease or we're having to add medicine after medicine uh, and we have diabetes, hypertension, elevated cholesterol, most of the, the true sources of healing for those are what you do. And if, and if we don't do it, we have to add more medications. And so we're in this system that encourages us to use more passive interventions. A passive intervention is something you take. An active intervention is something that comes from within you. And we've gotten so focused on this passive process. We both, physicians, clinicians, uh, the public, the patients, everybody needs to explore more active, how do we activate internal mechanisms for self-healing? And that's a very powerful process if we believe in it.
2: Well, I recall one of the stories you had was a gentleman who, you know, they were retired, liked to eat really well, and he didn't like to exercise. And he was putting on a lot of weight and getting all the concomitant sort of health issues with that and sort of wished one time when you were talking with him, isn't there a pill to cure obesity? And I think he reacted like a lot of people would said – yeah, it's called um, Eat Less and Exercise.
4: <laughs> right. <laughs> and, I, and I say in the book, he fired me right after that moment. So because, I guess it
2: wasn't helpful.
4: <laughs> well, the delivery wasn't right, right? Yeah, I mean, I was frustrated. And you know, I wasn't practicing this at all because I was frustrated. We have the answers, but uh, it takes hard work. And so that was my frustration uh, coming through. But ideally, in retrospect, if I was going to do that more strategically and more artfully, I would say, yeah, I, that will be great when that day comes. But in the meantime, what can you and I do to get there step-by-step? Step?
0: Dr. David Rachel's book is The Compassionate Connection, The Healing Power of Empathy and Mindful Listening. As with our other guests, you can hear Megan's complete interview with him on our website, peacetalksradio.com. We'll come back to Dr. Rachel a little bit later in the program. But right now, more from Dr. Renna Odish about her book, In Shock, My Journey from Death to Recovery and the Redemptive Power of Hope. Dr. Odish talks about the vulnerability she felt moving from doctor to patient.
1: It was as though my voice were devalued, that as a patient, I wasn't viewed as being the holder of the knowledge. I was really viewed as this construct of a patient, and the knowledge lived somewhere else. It was in the computers that held my labs and my imaging studies. It was in the minds of the physicians and the care team But I was not viewed as a holder of knowledge, and I think that really diminished my sense of agency and authority. The vulnerability was so profound that I find it even now hard to engage with healthcare as a patient because you know as soon as you do, even if it's for routine screening, you become someone different you become de-identified you go into this anonymous gown you are a bed number to some people and losing that voice is very difficult
2: You also write in your book that decision-making process in medicine is set up to ensure obedience rather than an honest exchange of information. In your case, (laughs) this nearly destroyed your kidneys when a resident didn't challenge a drug prescribed by a senior doctor, even though he knew you shouldn't get it. Why is the system set up this way?
1: That's one of the the deep struggles that I have is that the authority gradient in medicine, the sort of training that really is apprenticeship still with mentors who you hold in such high regard that the transfer of knowledge is really in one direction it's from the mentor to you it's never reversed that you're trained not to trust your own knowledge all knowledge comes from the mentor until you've you've assimilated that knowledge what that means is that you don't call people out on their mistakes it's not the culture now that's changing thankfully there's a flattening of that authority gradient so that it's more distributed amongst a team i think we've recognized in medicine that we are conditioning for error when we don't allow people to speak up when they see something that's wrong but like any culture that's deeply embedded that change takes time
2: You wrote in an essay that um, new employees in your system are also taught the difference between avoidable and unavoidable suffering. What does that mean?
1: I think that's a recognition of really the fact that we are in an industry of suffering, that illness comes with suffering and pain. And there are parts of that that we will never be able to take away. They're just inherent to the disease. But there are parts of it that we have control over, that we as caregivers cannot add suffering. So when I think about added suffering, I think about those casual callous conversations that patients overhear. I think about what we call gallows humor, where we make jokes about things that really aren't very funny because we don't know how else to deal with them. Those add suffering to our patients and there's no place for them. And really, even the belief that we had that they were somehow protecting us, that if we just joked about things, that that was a way of getting through hard times. I don't believe that that's true. I think we use humor because we don't know what else to do. And we have to build in the supports so that we find other ways of healing.
2: The training of doctors is kind of brutal. There's a lot of sleep deprivation. How can you change things when that system is kind of still in place?
1: There are some really great things that are happening in medical education in terms of bringing medical humanities back. You know, I think we got a little bit enamored by the technology and the potential for cure with genomic medicine and all of the amazing recent advances that we got away from what it meant to be a healer. And there's so much about healing that's not actually about science, that's about humanity and our physical presence. And there's really good evidence that even just reading fiction improves your ability to empathize with your fellow humans. So bringing medical humanities back and valuing the story, really. You know, as much as we value the data, understanding that story in a lot of ways is culture and medicine is so rich with story, that if we can learn to listen to our stories better, we can receive the histories of our patients better, it's not added. It's almost a layering of the curriculum so that you can see through these different lenses and have more depth and richness.
2: You've used painting as a way to process emotions and trauma, and you mentioned doing story slams and these other creative things. How are you incorporating, I I guess, these more kind of creative elements into helping doctors do things better with more empathy.
1: Yeah, there are wonderful resources available. And what we've tried to do is create enough of a curriculum around those things that everyone will interact with it and have an entry point that is appropriate for them. So just because You know, I find healing in painting. I can't extrapolate that to everybody. Obviously, that would presuppose what's right for doctors the same way we're trying not to presuppose what's right for patients. But providing different points of entry in terms of narrative medicine, story slams, visual thinking strategies, which is a really exciting thing that's happening at a lot of art museums around the country, where physicians learn how to more closely look and crowdsource information and value everyone's ideas. All of these things form a whole that, if available to physicians, really support a resilient culture. We, we talk about resilience almost as if it's binary, as if you have it or you don't, and I think that's so misguided. What, we, what we're trying to do is create a resilient culture so that it can catch people in those moments when when things get hard. What
2: can we do as patients to maybe gain more agency in our, our role in the system?
1: So much of that really comes down to I think us understanding each other. So as patients, we have to understand the, the pressures of the system for our caregivers. So to know that our provider does have a limited amount of time to interact with us, that that is not something that's in their control, and that we should go into those appointments prepared with what's important to us and really state our needs. You know, that helps the provider to prioritize and develop an agenda for that visit that serves the patient's needs. Always having a sense of, of what matters to you and having the, the voice to communicate that. So there was a great article recently in, in the New York Times about telling your provider what your bucket list is, because that makes your wishes really tangible to your physician. If I have a patient who is about to start chemotherapy or radiation therapy and they tell me You know, I've really wanted to go on this trip to the Grand Canyon. When do you anticipate I'll feel well enough to do that? As a physician, I can think, oh my gosh, no, they have no idea how they're going to feel for the next year. I have to tell them to go now because I have that subset of knowledge that I might not be accessing because I don't know what the question is. So truly sharing of yourself and what your values are so that your care team can align with that, I think that's our our most important role as patients.
0: That was Dr. Rena Audish, author of In Shock, My Journey from Death to Recovery and the Redemptive Power of Hope. Megan's complete interview with her is also at our website, peacetalksradio.com. In a moment, we'll come back to Dr. Mark J. Kahn about empathy and the humanities when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. (music) Paul Ingalls with Megan Kamrick, and this is Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Find our podcast on iTunes, and most of our episodes are at peacetalksradio.com. Today, Megan is exploring empathy and compassion in medicine, and now we hear some more with Dr. Mark J. Kahn of Tulane University School of Medicine, who's researched the importance of arts and humanities in promoting more empathy in medicine. The two fields used to be more closely related but have been diverging over the last century.
3: I think that the divergence has happened because of the overwhelming increase in scientific knowledge over the past 100 years, and most notably over the past 10 to 20 years, especially with the cloning of the human genome. So as the science of medicine has grown exponentially, something had to be crowded out. And our concern is that which is really essential to being a physician, and that's arts and humanities.
2: Is it ever a challenge to get students interested in these electives? I know that medical students are very driven people.
3: Um, It's a greater challenge, quite honestly, to get the faculty to buy in that these are important. And that was the basis for the study that Sal Mangione and I put together. The students, I think, see this as important and want to do this.
2: Why is it important to foster empathy in medical students and doctors?
3: So empathy is the ability to appreciate another's position and um, frame of mind. Empathy is important because when we deal with patients, we need to understand the disease from their perspective. And that's really empathy. When we understand that, we're better able to change behavior. And after all, one of the major roles of a physician is to alter behavior so that people lead healthier lifestyles.
2: You've mentioned the resistance on some faculty and maybe um, from other doctors to the very idea that empathy is important. It seems, from what I've learned so far, to go against some of the training at least perhaps older doctors got.
3: Yeah, I think that empathy has always been important, and it's just been assumed that doctors are going to be empathetic. I think we can look at you know, patient surveys on their doctors to, to know that that's not always the case. The question is, is empathy innate? Is that just something we have or we don't? Or is it something that can be developed? And we would argue that everyone has an innate sense of empathy, but those skills can be developed further uh, through arts and humanities.
0: You can hear Megan's complete interview with Dr. Mark J. Kahn at peacetalksradio.com. Look for our May 2018 episode. Dr. David Rakel did a study that found compassion and empathy actually lessened the length and severity of the common cold in patients. He and his colleagues were randomly assigned to conduct standard or enhanced patient visits. If they were assigned an enhanced visit, they worked to create empathetic connections with the patients. But if they were given a standard visit, they didn't make eye contact and were perfunctory and clinical. Raichel says those standard cases were difficult, especially when he treated a 12-year-old girl. And I tried to stay aloof. I tried not to connect
4: eye to eye. And I could feel the pain because I could feel her presence try and pull me in. And, and at the very end of the visit, we would always ask, "Do you have any other questions?" And this twelve-year-old girl paused, and she said, "Do you have a family?" <laughs> and I stuck to the the protocol for the study. I did not look at her, and I said, "Yes, I've got a wife and three kids. Any other questions?" <laughs> and, and, and when I left that room, uh, I followed the protocol for the study, but I felt terrible. I felt terrible because I blocked a simple human connection of this 12-year-old who saw I needed much more than she did and was reaching out to try and form this connection. So if we don't allow that to unfold when we have an invitation, it hurts. It physically hurts. And I felt that encounter for a good week after uh, it happened.
2: How have doctors been trained in ways that discourage Engaging in empathy.
4: (laughs) That's a tough one. If you look at the the research, you know, we admit medical students with this mile wide of empathy and compassion. (laughs) And then we start to teach them the science and the algorithms. They're coming
2: in with this idea like I want to help the world. Yeah, exactly.
4: And they're very empathetic. They're very kind, compassionate human beings. And after the fourth year of medical school, we've narrowed down that focus quite a bit to uh, reduce empathy. And we, and we see this uh, in both men and women. Women usually come in with more empathy than men. Uh, but if you see what happens over four years of medical school, you can actually turn a woman into a man <laughs> if you send her to medical school because then the, the, they equal each other in empathy. Uh, but we should be doing that when the research is showing that empathy and compassion is one of the most powerful things that we have in our therapeutic uh, black bag. And, and so uh, we want to teach people the science, but we won't, won't, don't want to do that with the loss of empathy. So science plus empathy is stacking the deck in favor.
2: Is it just because the training is so brutal, or are they actively discouraged from being empathetic? I think
4: maybe in the past they were actively discouraged. You know, Sir Sir William Osler, one of the fathers of medicine, said it's much more important to know what type of person has a disease than what disease a person has. But he also said uh, that we should have this uh, detached concern uh, for our patients. And it's hard to be empathetic if you're detached, right? So uh, that was a culture that we're slowly realizing that we need to change. So we're actively, particularly here at University of New Mexico, we're actively treating everybody in these skills, as are many medical schools across the country. And I think in the future, as computers get smarter and smarter and smarter, and they're able to do a lot of the cognitive work that we we were admitted to medical school to do, because we were good at that, is actually going to take the place of that need in humans, and we're going to need to do more of this emotional intelligence and, and compassionate connecting.
2: So how are you teaching this?
4: Well, uh, Rachel and Naomi Remen, with some medical students at UCSF, started a, a elective for medical students called the Healer's Art. And the Healer's Art is a, a beautiful process that uh, uses small groups with um, some set rules that no- nothing leaves the group. Everything is supported. No one's here to fix each other. That we're here just to explore life together, and and in that elective, which University of New Mexico is one of the, it's actually the only medical school in the country that requires this for all of its students, uh, we explore life. (laughs) There's different aspects of of themes that we talk about. Like, so when you choose medicine, what did you have to give up that you love? because this is a dedicated profession, you had to give something up. What do you miss? What's a part of you that you left behind? We also, my, fun, my, my favorite uh, session is mystery and awe, where we talk about the mystery and awe of medicine and, and being alive that can't be explained by our science. And that's fun to just allow ourselves to, to talk about that that may not be, quote, scientific. And, um, and then we write our own Hippocratic Oath that has meaning for us. Uh, and we do that in a way that allows us to self-reflect, write down what's meaningful to us and why we want to do this work. Because that connection to meaning and purpose is the main driver of behavior. And, and that's what we need to connect to, not only for ourselves in education, but in patient care. Because if I tell you to – I'll use someone else as an example, not Megan. But if I have someone who smokes and I tell them to stop smoking, that works about 5% of the time. It might go up to 10% if I'm really good at this compassionate connection. Uh, but if I ask them what gives them meaning and purpose, and they say, my daughter, who has asthma, and I said, does your smoking help or hinder your daughter to get to where she wants to go, someone you love? And they say, well, it probably doesn't help. That will get them to stop smoking much quicker than me telling them. So that's why we have to explore this meaning. Meaning in our work, what gets us up each morning to go to work, uh, and meaning in our behaviors that that motivational interviewing, which was founded here at University of New Mexico, uh, that shows this uh, disconnect between our behaviors and what gives our life meaning and purpose. Once we see that disconnect, behavior changes.
2: This is with medical students. Does this also extend to training established doctors? Are you guys doing (laughs) that? (laughs) There's
4: there's an old saying. uh, This is kind of mean, but I think it's kind of funny. If you try and teach a pig to sing, you not only... Fail miserably, but you annoy the pig. <laughs> and, and so, the, what that is saying is that if there's someone caught in their in their ways and their beliefs, uh, it and we try and change them, we'll just upset them. Uh, you know, acceptance is really important. How do we accept uh, who they are? And if they're not ready to change, you know, I'm not going to change them. You know, they're happy where they're at. Uh, I think if if their life is in turmoil, then there's an opportunity to say, hey, you know, if that didn't work for you, here's a better way. Let's let's explore this route together. It is harder once someone's older and has those beliefs and habits established. And that's why we like working with our younger colleagues. But uh, no matter what age we are, we can change. And you see this on people's deathbed all the time, that they don't realize what gives their life meaning and purpose until they have a few days to live. And then they start to forgive people. They start to connect with their loved ones. They start to realize what was really most important in their life, and they connect to that. And so it, it, it's always possible.
2: A lot of what you explore in this book is based in mindfulness and meditation and work by John Kabat-Zinn. What is your sense in terms of how this is being adopted in the medical community?
4: Uh, very much so. If you look at the uh, PubMed research citations for mindfulness, it has gone up exponentially in the last uh, 15 to 20 years, uh, almost to where you know people have heard so much about it, it's, it's getting an eye roll. But that tells you something, that uh, there's some truth there. And what Jon Kabat-Zinn did is he took this Eastern philosophy and brought it to the West. And so this is thousands and thousands of years old. It's, it's nothing new. Uh, we're just giving it its needed attention. And uh, I like to use the analogy of a snow globe. You know, a lot of times we walk through life trying to see the beauty at the middle of the snow globe, but everything's in turmoil and and it's shaken. And in in shaking uh, the mind's thoughts, there's a lot of clutter, and you can't see what's beautiful at the middle of the snow globe until you let it sit, until you let it settle, until your mind focuses on one thing well. And that's meditation 101. That focus on one thing well also increases our awareness of everything around us. And uh, that's been defined in many traditions. Mindfulness talks about being in the present moment on purpose without judgment. Pranayama yoga focuses on the breath. Um, Transcendental meditation focuses on a mantra or a word. It all starts with recognizing one thing, focusing on it. The mind will wander, it always does. You forgive the mind and you bring it back to your one thing. That's the practice. And what we're trying to teach is, how can that other human being be our one thing? How can we give them our full, undivided presence uh, and listen well and allow them permission to tell their story that will give us the best information to help them heal? And in the process, we heal together. Which is a beautiful process. No one believes it until they do it, so you have to actually do it, uh, but it's hard. You know, so and and it takes skills that, that I think we can teach.
2: What about the proliferation of artificial intelligence and these other? Who knows what's coming down the road? Yeah. But you know, we have a giant computer in our hands every day. How do you take advantage of the potential of that, and and still be present for this one thing for your right. patient?
4: You know, it's coming. It's a, it's amazing how fast this is developing. This artificial in, intelligence. And it's going to change healthcare uh, significantly. And there'll be growing pains along the way. But we don't, some people call that disruptive technology. I call it advancement. <laughs> you know, it's coming and it's going to help us do our job better. And it's going to change what we are going to need humans to do more of. And I think we are going to be asked to do complexity more than computers. Com- computers can do algorithms very well. They can do images very well. They actually read images much better than radiologists and dermatologists when it comes to reading a melanoma or a mole or a CT scan. Uh, but we also need those professionals to do that authentic intelligence, You know, really connecting human to human and understanding that story. So I think with artificial intelligence, what we describe in this book is, as a powerful healing entity is going to be a purely human to human task that humans are wired specifically to do with each other.
0: That's Dr. David Rakel. As with all of our guests, you can hear Megan's complete interviews with them in our May 2018 episode page, Empathy and Compassion in Medicine at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com where you can go and hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002, see photos of our guests, read and share transcripts. Sign up for a podcast, order CDs, or make a donation to keep this program going into the future. Peace Talks Radio is produced separate and apart from your media outlet. Find out more at peacetalksradio.com. Support also comes from listeners like you, also the McCune Charitable Foundation and the Albuquerque Community Foundation and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Days Moses is our executive director, Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Megan Kamrick, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.